Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Make it plain. Make it plain. M.I.P. With my Samella, my Fumo. Mark Thompson. Make it plain. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, M.I.P. is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, a very special guest with us today. She is a feminist and an international one at that, as she is also a journalist, having been based in Nairobi and having been a UN Foundation Fellow in Malawi and Indonesia um, and an International Reporting Project Fellow in Brazil and India. She is a winner of a 2014 News Women's Club of New York front page award for her global health reporting and two Society of Professional Journalists Sigma Delta Chi awards for political commentary. She has written for the New York Times and Cosmopolitan and CNN and The Guardian, her work on law, politics, gender, and foreign affairs has appeared also in the Washington Post, Vice Time, Al Jazeera, and many others. She was an editor at NYU's Law Journal of Law and Social Change, and also a contributor 
to the Yale Journal of Law and Feminism and the anthology Yes Means Yes, Visions of Female Sexual Power and a World Without Rape. And that was named one of the best books of the year when it was published by Publishers Weekly. She's the author of The H Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. But today we're talking about her brand new book, OK Boomer, Let's Talk, How My Generation Got Left Behind. Jill Filipovic joins us on Make It Plain. Jill, how are you? I'm well. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And it's a pleasure to have you. I sh should also mention, if it wasn't understood, you're also an attorney. So you had a very versatile career. But would you say that uh, the uh, uh, highest title you own would be that of a feminist? Um, yeah, I, I would definitely say that I am, I am a known internet feminist. <laughs> and we should all be feminists. I hope you're a feminist too, Mark. Oh, I am. I am. Uh, sometimes, we're just men. Women get it. When, when you say to women you're a feminist, that's fine. Dudes, though, a lot of times, what do you mean? How can you be a feminist? So I have sometimes, but it always gives me a, a teachable moment <laughs> when I say that as to how a man can be a feminist. But let's talk about the book, um, what the popular meme these days is, after all. Okay, Boomer. Um, so talk to us about what it is you have to say to Boomers and what is the potential for dialogue between um, Boomers' generation and ours. So the book, as the title says, really is an attempt at a dialogue. It's also an attempt to look back at the history of how we got here. I'm a millennial. My generation has been quite maligned. We're told that we don't own our homes because we eat too much avocado toast, that we're these overly sensitive snowflakes, uh, that we're hyper PC, that you know, we're, we've ruined every beloved American industry. And what I'm trying to do with the book is to look at well, what are the conditions that were put in place? Who put those conditions in place that made millennial life so precarious? I think something people really don't understand is that millennials are living on the edge. If it weren't for uh, welfare programs, things like food stamps, cash welfare, millennials would be the most impoverished young adults since the Great Depression. Mm. So our generation is in trouble. And a lot of what has made our generation in so much trouble are policies put in place by mostly conservative, but not, all, not always conservative, boomer politicians. So boomers very much had elders who cleared the way for them. And this was particularly true for the white boomers who were a large majority of their generation. Um, they had a radically expanded education system. They had higher education that was newly affordable. There was a widely expanded affordable, a widely expanded affordable housing for whites. Um, all of that allowed white boomers to really attain a foothold in the middle class. Millennials were also the most racially diverse adult generation. And so you see so many of those racial inequities that have persisted since before the United States was even the United States. Um, 
really becoming so much more magnified in our more diverse generation. And at the same time, you've seen boomer elected politicians like Ronald Reagan, who was elected in 1980, the, the year that millennials began to come into the world, um, not just slashing up the social safety net, but really pulling down the ladder that allowed so many boomers to climb into the middle class. So that by the time my generation was coming of age, all of these kind of abilities to get a foothold up and move up and up and up um, had, had really been torn down for us. Um, I thought the way things were supposed to work, each generation was supposed to leave things better for the generation behind it. What, what happened? How did boomers not get that? Or did they, were, were, was in any, were in any way boomers themselves crippled from doing that, maybe without even realizing it? So I think what you've seen, that really there was a pivot point among the boomer generation as they had children, was this shift to social obligations for an entire generation toward these really individual obligations for your own kids. So I would imagine lots of boomer parents watching this are saying, well, wait a minute, I helped my kid pay for college. I still pay my adult child's phone bill. You know, I did everything that I could for my child. What do you mean we've screwed your generation? Where the shift really was, was in this concentration of obligations into individual families rather than into society writ large. Um, you know, things like funding for education, things like making sure housing is affordable and everybody has access to a safe home and a safe neighborhood. Um, so that's been a tremendous shift that has meant relatively good outcomes for the small number of millennials who are white and coming from affluent families. Um, and really bad outcomes for everyone else who make up the majority of our generation. You know, we are about to see in the next decade the largest wealth transfer in American history as boomers die and leave their assets to their children. Well, it's white millennials and again, upper middle class and middle class white millennials who are going to disproportionately benefit from that. And we're going to see that really continue to fuel um, these, these yawning income inequalities that we see in the US that yes, are of course along the lines of class given that they're income and wealth inequalities, um, but also really along the lines of race. And so the trend is that these are going to get worse unless we take concerted steps to make them better. And my concern is that boomers are still totally dominant in American politics you know, on the state level, on the national level. And we just haven't seen the kind of necessary political policy change that would help to close some of these gaps and let people, not just of my generation, but now Gen Zers, have an equal and fair shot at the future. You mentioned Ronald Reagan. That in terms of the shift from um, more attention and more defense of, of social policy to the individualism, so to speak, and I'm paraphrasing you, Jill, Ronald Reagan and electing him, and I mean, because I agree with that, if that's your point, was sort of the the original sin that started this, isn't it? Electing Reagan was a huge turning point. Um, a lot of these building blocks were put in place earlier, right? Like 
Ronald Reagan did not create racist housing policies that are now a driver of wealth gaps, um, racial wealth gaps, and then also generational wealth gaps. Um, but Ronald Reagan both accelerated some of the uh, most extreme existing ills in American culture, and then also really wiped out many of the positive gains that had been made. So you see after 1980, for example, um, really pronounced underinvestment in public education. The same system that had allowed boomers to grow into the middle class was, uh, you know, not obviously wiped out, but really undermined by Reagan. 1980 is the year where you start to see America's health system just go totally off the rails. <laughs> you start to see uh, that we're spending much more money on healthcare, both than we did before and in comparison to our economic peer nations. But you also see that our health outcomes don't increase. So for example, in Western Europe, you start to see people, health costs are kind of leveling off. Um, well, you also see that health outcomes are getting better. And in America, you see the opposite. You see that we're spending so much more money and we're not seeing many related benefits. Um, and the point where you really see on that, you can look at the graph and you start to see that chart really shift is 1980. Um, uh, so just you know, across a, a kind of whole spectrum of the things we need to live safe, prosperous, healthy lives, Reagan really kind of pulled the rug out from under us. Yeah, yeah. And really began to make the argument about rugged individualism. Let's not do anything for everyone else. Um, and maybe more implied than explicit, you know, you've got yours, I've got mine. Everybody else get yours the best way they can. Um, and one of the things I always highlight, and I'm, I know you deal with this in the book, when it comes to organized labor, um, that has really not recovered since the assault that the Reagan administration um, um, prosecuted against it. And what's organized labor but collectivism? So the opposite of collectivism is that individualism, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, organized labor took a tremendous hit under Reagan, as you said, not only from which it has not recovered, but that has only gotten magnified, right? And especially as you've seen Republican state governors really pushing, you know, these quote unquote right to work laws that decimate union power, which is one of the only ways that workers could get a fair shake. And, you know, now you see millennials we are much more likely than members of older generations to work gig jobs, right? To work for things like Uber or Instacart. Um, to free, I'm a freelancer. To, to freelance, those jobs have they have no protections. There's no health insurance. You're you know a quote unquote contractor. And while yes, that gives us flexibility that that we do want in our sort of hyper capitalist society of overwork, that's important to us. Um, the total lack of that employer provided safety net that existed for our parents, this isn't there for us. And you know, a lot of that does go back to Ronald Reagan and, and then the folks that have carried forward his legacy. Um, okay, Boomer, let's talk your book, Jill. Do you, you mean for it to initiate a dialogue, really? I do. I think one thing that is poorly understood about Boomers is that Boomers are an incredibly politically polarized generation. So white conservative boomers are the ones that ended up getting um, most of the political power, right? 
even you know the the first baby boomer president bill clinton was a you know, moderate conservative democrat so that uh, that view that boomers are you know all kind of these right-wing reactionaries spun up by fox news absolutely true for half of you for half of the boomer generation um i think what we miss is that there is another half on the other pole who were the folks who were marching against the they didn't start the vietnam war movement but they were certainly the boots on the ground right who were active in second wave feminism who were mostly kids when the civil rights movement was happening but certainly carried forward the legacy of that movement um who are the folks who started the lgbt rights movement who were rioting at stonewall those folks did not manage to attain the kind of elected power that conservative boomers did but i mean i would argue that they've won the culture and they've certainly won the hearts and minds of of, of young people and so i think to the extent to which boomers who are receptive to having this conversation and who are wondering what kind of world am i leaving my kids with and what can i do now to make that better for them um that's who i wanted to talk to i'm not going to convince you know, Donald Trump is too old to be a boomer, but I'm not going to convince whatever boomer members of his administration that they should care about the future of young people. Um, but there is a solid half of, of the boomer generation that has gotten increasingly silenced. Um, I think as, you know, as the years have gone on and as conservatives have risen to power, um, who I think are quite receptive to this and, and are um, as anxious as millennials are about what the future looks like. You know, it's funny you mentioned Bill Clinton uh, because a, a lot of us, and this is part of the problem too, he came in on that Reagan thing almost pretending to be, uh, and maybe this is an overstatement, you know, a, a Democratic Reagan, but for a Democrat to have been as conservative-ish and DLC-ish as he was, we all kind of mad at him anyway. You, you probably have seen some of the conversation about what he said at John Lewis's funeral. And it's that type of, that was inappropriate, but it's, it was, it's just that need to feed into that argument or that arrogance. I'm just gonna say whatever I wanna say that I can fit comfortably in, in terms of my own perception. Um, and for those who don't know, I'm talking about what he said about Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, uh, uh, very inappropriate. But I guess he too would be somewhat of a culprit because he enabled post-Reagan um, policies by doing some of the things he did, you know, uh, end welfare as we know it, uh, the era of big government is over, um, men but don't end affirmative action. So he bears some guilt for this too, doesn't he? Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you pointed to welfare and Clintonian welfare reform, which was an abject disaster. Uh, you know, it was a, obviously a massive policy disaster, but it also fed into this mentality that you're describing of this hyper, hyper individualism that has been devastating for the United States, a sense that we don't have a collective responsibility to each other as, as citizens and as, and as human beings. Um, you know, Clinton is also the president, and this was, I, I think, less of an intentional outcome than kind of a political miscalculation, um, but who allowed Sally Mae to be privatized. So, and that was part of a, you know, 
one of these attempts at a grand bargain with Republicans to get something else that he wanted. And if his end goal had come to fruition, we would have had a better student loan system. Um, but he messed up the calculation. And what ended up happening is Sally May became totally unfettered from government regulation, became not only a lender of student loans, but also its own collection agency. Um, and one of the reasons that college costs are now so extreme is that you have organizations like Sally May that are able to give students essentially unlimited amounts of money so schools can charge whatever they want. Um, and are also what's lender neutral. So even if you're signing up to go to a school that is, for example, a Betsy DeVos owned for private college um, that targets students of color, first generation students, and has a graduation rate of let's say 30%, Sally Mae will still lend to you to go to that school, even though chances are you are not going to graduate and you are going to walk away with a huge pile of student loan debt. Um, that decision was made under Bill Clinton. It was a tremendous mistake. So, I mean, sure, of course, it's not just Ronald Reagan. There is, there is a lot of blame to go around here. And the goal for me is not to just point fingers and say, look at everything you guys did wrong. It's to say, let's look at the pattern of choices, specific political policy choices that were made in the past that intentionally or unintentionally led us to the point that we are now. And let's let that inform how we move forward and how we undo some of the biggest wrongs that have been done to millennials and young people. You mentioned, I mean, you put a delineation between boomers, you know, those who are privileged and white, and then those who were involved in the anti-Vietnam movement and the feminist movement and what have you. Um, and so if, if you are talking um, to that latter set of boomers, aren't those boomers the ones numerically really in the majority? Progressive boomers, you mean? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I wish it were the case. Okay. Um, boomers really are kind of split 50-50 between liberal okay. um, more extreme conservatives among boomers than extreme liberals. Um, but you have a lot of moderate liberals on the boomer side. You compare that to millennials, and I think something like 80% of us are, are left of center. Um, so we are kind of a much more generally left-leaning generation. Um, boomers really are kind of split right down the middle. Always a surprise. I mean, I grew up in Seattle with liberal boomer parents and all their friends were progressive. And, you know, I think they're always very surprised to see um, just how conservative so many members of their generation are. So, but aren't there, especially in this moment of woke culture and all that has happened since this pandemic, um, the police-demic we've seen, um, do you think that some of these boomers that are changeable are in fact changing and open to dialogue and acknowledgement that maybe they didn't get it right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think there are two things happening. I think uh, um, first you have boomers who are the elders of so many of these movements, right? I'm, I am thrilled and just absolutely bowled over by all the folks in the streets who are out protesting, 
you know, we were saying to defund the police, to radically reform our criminal justice system. Um, and, you know, you look at who's out there and it is mostly millennials and Gen Zers. Um, but it's important to consider you know, Brian Stevenson is a boomer, relatively young boomer, but he's a boomer. You know, we're not, in, we're not inventing <laughs> criminal justice reform. There's a lot of folks who have been working on these issues and have a lot of knowledge to share and have made a lot of progress over many, many years. Um, so that's important that there are boomers who have really paved the way for the social movements that millennials and Gen Zers um, and adhere the most strongly to. And then I think there are a lot of boomers who have realized, wow, we kind of screwed this one up. Um, I think, you know, Donald Trump, for better or worse, has been an incredibly pivotal president for a lot of folks who have realized, how did we get to this point where this guy got into office? How, um, yeah, what have we as boomers until very recently, the you know, largest American generation, certainly the most politically influential American generation in the past century, um, you know, what did we do wrong here? You know, it's funny, I sent my father the book to read um, right before. Mm. And the end of the book is very kind of like, let's have a dialogue and let's, let's all get along and let's think about how to move forward together. And my dad, who's like a pretty chill guy, was like, I think that I'm just surprised you guys haven't all rioted yet. Like, this is insane what we've left you. I think you guys need to be more radical. I think you need to be more extreme. You know, I wonder if in your conclusion, you should be angrier. Like, you have a right to be pissed. <laughs> um, and I mean, that, was, I mean, that's, that is the reaction that I hope for from the book, right? That boomers read it and feel fired up, feel like, you know, not just, oh, I'm ashamed of my generation, but yeah, I want to work with you to make this better. So I was wrong. Um, my hypothesis about uh, the demographics of boomers or the split. So let me see if I'm right or wrong about this. Let's talk about women and feminism. Now, it would seem to me, I mean, the, the discussion right now is all around um, suburban, college-educated white women voters. And obviously, that includes some boomers. Um, I'd like to think that white women boomers are, you're making that face, so I, don't, I hope, <laughs> I'm trying to be optimistic here, Joe. Uh, you know, I didn't believe, I confess this to you, and even some of my white women activists allies had to set me straight. When they first said 53% of white women voted for Trump, I was like, I don't believe that. That just can't be possible. But they, we live in our own bubbles. So I hang out with women like you and others. So I just don't know these other women that do that. The women who voted for Roy Moore after all, I don't, I don't, I don't even relate to that. But am, am I wrong? Uh, aren't um, uh, white women and some who are boomers um, having their own reckoning? Is, is that not evident in those that are leaving Trump? I think some are. And I, I do think in, in the last midterm elections, at least you certainly saw a really big educational divide there that now college educated white women vote for Democrats. Um, white women without college degrees tend to vote for Republicans. So you do see that divide. And I, I haven't seen education breakdown by age. So I, I don't know if like the college degree thing holds for boomers. I assume it does. Um, but you're seeing a shift now, even among working class white women, 
in the wake of Donald Trump, who are more and more kind of moving a little bit left. So I think that you are seeing white women start to change. Um, look, I, I think one of the more sort of complicated things to talk about around race and feminism is the fact that white women benefit from patriarchal structures and we certainly benefit from white supremacy. And so I think there are a lot of white women who are quite invested in those systems, right? Who look at their immediate lives and say, well, this makes things better for me. And, and to some degree, they're not wrong. Um, so there, I think there is this idea, this assumption that white women would be more receptive to feminism, more receptive to anti-racist work. Um, I'm disappointed that they're not. I, you know, I, um, I'm disappointed, but I guess I'm not surprised. I think when you look at the whole of American history, you know, you look at the photos of integrating Little Rock High School and, you know, it's white women on the front lines screaming, just absolutely verbally assaulting children. Um, so it's, it's not surprising. <laughs> it was not so surprising to me that white women voted the way they did in 2016. Um, that said, I think you are right that there is a reckoning happening among white women in particular. You know, you see the wall of moms in Portland, who I'm sure we're all liberal to begin with, but you know, are certainly, they're getting their butts out there, right? And I think you see a lot of the suburban women that worked really, really hard in the midterms to flip red districts blue. Um, I think these are many folks that, I don't know that they were like conservative Trumpists before, but perhaps we're a bit apathetic and now see what's at stake. And I think that that is certainly a moment for, for celebration. It's a positive shift. Yeah. Well, you, your point is well taken because we seems like we have a, an epidemic of, of Karens these days too. And they tend to be in the boomer generation, um, interestingly enough. It's something else you said that's interesting and I'm wondering about this too. You talked about the benefits the boomer generation received from whatever era of collectivism was taking place. We saw what was called the white lash to the first black president. So you get Trump and you go back to the extreme. I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if while it might not, it might not have gone by that name, whether um, the advent of Ronald Reagan himself was also sort of a, a, a boomer white lash against what was going on collectively um, at an earlier point in boomers' lives. I mean, after all, when we say the advent of Ronald Reagan, we're talking about even the 60s and 1968 and all of that. I mean, he was there in the midst of that um, of staking his claim um, as an heir to Goldwater and Nixon. So I, I wonder if, again, this, what we saw then and what we see manifest today is again that ebb and flow in American history of uh, progressivism, liberalism, racial consciousness, and then get pulled right back to the other. I mean, it just unfortunately seems to be that back and forth. Am, am I in the ballpark on that, you think? I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think Ronald Reagan was very much a backlash to the 1960s and the 1970s. And, you know, both the amount of real tangible progress that was made, um, you know, things like the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and 
the attempt failed attempt to pass the ERA, um, and then a series of Supreme Court decisions, you know, Roe versus Wade being the probably the most significant of that era. Um, I, I do think that you saw a backlash to the politics of that, and then I think you saw a big cultural backlash as well. Um, you know, when I was writing the book, I was going back and reading all of these like New York Times articles around the the election, the first election of Ronald Reagan. Um, and I, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but there was one woman they interviewed who was saying something to the effect of like, well, you know, baby boomers, we were always, you know, supposed to be out there protesting the status quo. Um, but now I am the status quo. <laughs> and it was this sort of sense of as baby boomers moved in, you know, to their single family suburban homes and started to have kids, um, that that was a pretty conservatizing force for a lot of them. You know, I think it's important to remember that the number of folks that actually were protesting the Vietnam War, who were baby boomers, who were actually out doing feminist action, was a pretty small minority of the generation. They were hugely influential. Um, but in terms of numbers, most baby boomers were still getting married at 22 and you know, moving into their first home together and starting families. And you know, that tends to be a life trajectory that <laughs> makes people a little, a little more conservative. So, I, you know, I, I do think that Reagan was entirely, as you said, this um, this response to what we're seeing as big changes too fast, too soon, too many excesses uh, of the 60s and 70s. So what would you like to result from this dialogue, Jill? So one of the things that I would love baby boomers to, to be thoughtful about is how do we share power with millennials? Baby boomers have been politically and culturally dominant for the past four or five decades. Um, culturally dominant for much longer than that. Um, and to me, one of the big gaps is millennials now outnumber baby boomers. And the oldest millennials are 40 this year. So it's not like we're high school kids. And yet you see so few millennials in Congress. There's not a single millennial in the US Senate. We're really politically underrepresented. And I think that's kind of a, that elected sphere is, is very much representative of workplaces generally, of nonprofits, of businesses, of organizations. You just aren't seeing a lot of millennials in positions of power. And I think that's part because boomers are refusing to cede that power and refusing to share it. Um, and I'm not saying boomers need to go off into a corner and die. I, I am saying, you know, it's, it's time to share, it's time to hand over the reins and it's time to share some of that power and being thoughtful about how, you know, in, in every aspect of life, professional and personal, that can start to happen, I think is, is really important right now. Yeah, and it's interesting to see the handful of boomer elected officials that are losing seats even in this current cycle. And it's just shocking. They just can't believe it. And I've been in Congress for 50 years. You know, um, there is an inability to obviously pass the torch. Um, yeah, that, that is interesting. And um, you're not saying boomers should just go somewhere and die, but Donald Trump is. Uh, <laughs> and and I, hope, I hope they get that, boomers get that come November, don't you? I hope so too. And I think they are. I think there's been some really interesting polling on um, how folks, you know, 65 and older see Trump because he has essentially said, yeah, there's this you know, deadly disease that's disproportionately impacting older people, but 
I'm just not going to do anything about it. And sorry, you've had your chance. Figure it out. Um, you know, if, if certainly if I was part of that group that the president has just said he's going to intentionally neglect and, and let die um, in a way that, you know, every other, nearly every other country in the world has figured out how to prevent, um, I'd be pretty upset. I don't think I'd be casting my ballot for him. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Okay, Boomer, let's talk how my generation got left behind. It's a fascinating book, and this has been a fascinating discussion. So people just do book tours. I, are you going to actually do a book tour that's also like a dialogue? I could see you on stage trying to talk to a Boomer. I wish, but I'm not going to try and infect that Boomer with COVID. So <laughs> we're doing Right, 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 right. A series of virtual events, including talking to many different uh, baby, several different baby boomers. Um, well, that'll be fascinating. That will definitely be fascinating, and we look forward to all of that dialogue. Folks, check it out. Okay, Boomer, let's talk how my generation got left behind. Brand new from Jill Filipovic. Jill, so good to see you. Congratulations on the book and let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.